Hello everyone and welcome to Intermediate English episode 20 with me, Benjamin. For the first episode of 2021, um, we wanted to do something slightly different and to revisit a podcast from last year and to discuss it. So to do that, I brought back my friend Alex, who you'll remember from the podcast on William Shakespeare. And today we're going to be discussing episode 14, Posh. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it's probably a good idea to go back to it and have a listen to it before listening to this interview. Before we start the interview, I just want to play a message that I received from one of you, one of my listeners, and this is a message from Kana in Japan. Dear Intermediate English, my name is Kana and I'm an English learner living in Japan. I just want to tell you I'm so thankful that you started the Intermediate English podcast and offer us such quality content. I listen to the podcast repeatedly almost every day and take notes on what you're saying in the program. What I like about the podcast is that your tone of voice is very easy to hear and it helps me a lot when you rephrase a difficult word into a simple one. I've already recommended this podcast to my friends and also shared it on my Twitter. Since I majored in international relations at my university, I'm interested in the goings on of the world, including British politics, and your podcast is just what I've searched for. My favorite episodes are Posh and Who is Boris Johnson and Why Did the UK Choose Him? I think there are a lot of similarities in the political system between Japan and the UK. We also have a system of leadership election, and the current Prime Minister, Sugayushihide, was elected within the Liberal Democratic Party. Factionalism in the party has always been a crucial issue when it comes to the leadership elections. Also, Yuriko Koike, the governor of Tokyo, has similar attitudes toward politics as Bruce Johnson does. She won the governor election supported by the far-right groups in Japan, yet she has been trying to hide her own beliefs since inaugurated as a governor in 2016. However, it became very controversial last year when Koike didn't permit to hold the memorial ceremony for Koreans massacred in the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake. The more I listen to the podcast, the more it seems that there are several similarities between Japan and the UK in terms of political aspects, and I'm always interested in the topic you choose. I'm looking forward to hearing the new episode on the podcast and hope you're doing well during this difficult time. Sincerely, Kana. Thank you so much for your message, Kana. It's really encouraging to hear positive feedback on the podcast and to find out what you like about it, what you enjoy. Um, so thank you so much for that. And it was also a pleasure to find out a bit about your life and your interests and why you're learning English. You have a really excellent level of English and I'm really impressed by your message. I think it's really interesting the similarities that you have pointed out between Britain and Japan in terms of their political systems. And this is something that I don't know a lot about, but it's really interested me in how Japan works, um, since it's also a monarchy, and to try and find out a little bit more about it. 
So thank you for telling me about that. If any of you would like to send me a message, either an email or a voice message, you can always do that at intermediatepods at gmail.com. If you heard our bonus episode that was released recently, you will also know that there are two new ways of getting in touch with Intermediate English. You can find us on Instagram, Intermediate English Podcast, or Twitter, also Intermediate English Podcast. So why not get in touch with us on there? Now it's time for the interview with Alex. We start off by talking about the idea of social class in Britain and what that has to do with being posh. Why do you think we have a class system? Do you think that it's something that's worth talking about, something that means anything in 2021? Yeah, I think it is worth talking about. And I think one of the reasons it is worth discussing is that it's less obvious than it used to be, but still very important. So I think that if you are someone visiting the UK or learning about the UK, it might not be as plain as it would have been 50 or 100 years ago that there is this kind of class system that is in the UK. And even if it's less important now than it was, it does still drive lots of the um, differences in culture that you might see in different parts of the UK, or it certainly um, plays into people's minds. So normally in the UK, you would talk about there being the working class, the middle class, and the upper class. And I guess when you're talking about posh, lots of times that feels, if not quite the same as upper class, quite similar and a, and a big overlap between those two things. And historically, that's been a very small group. Um, and then maybe one of the things that's happened more recently in the UK is that the line between middle class and working class is maybe harder to distinguish. Um, and I think interesting, if you listen to a podcast or something from the United States, they would quite often talk about the middle class and they would mean by that um, people on relatively low incomes just trying to get by. And sometimes in the UK, you might talk about the working class in those same terms. But I don't think it's that simple. Often the working class, there are certain things that in the UK would be considered culturally working class, even if, for example, the person now has a job uh, let's say, in a more professional role, let's say they became a doctor or a lawyer, which would have been considered middle class jobs, they might still be culturally working class um, in terms of the sort of uh, culture that they would get involved in or the sport that they would play or the food or the drink that they would consume. They might still have a kind of working class culture to them, um, even though lots of other aspects of their life in terms of their wealth or their profession or their education might be more associated with the middle class. So that kind of blur between the two, I think means it is worth trying to think about more. You also asked why we have one or why we have this class system. I don't know, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question why that is more profound 
in the UK than it is in other places. Um, I guess, let's say, the upper class we have, uh, as you talked about in the podcast on Posh, and I'm sure we'll talk about more, there are kind of certain um, kind of circles within the upper class of people who get educated in certain places, who get certain jobs, who have certain roles in the running of the country that they're kind of, I can see how the upper class stays as a very firm circle. I guess maybe we've had quite a strong idea of in the UK of this middle class of people with some level of perhaps of property ownership. They might own their own home, they might own or run a small business. Um, and those kind of professional uh, roles of doctors and lawyers and quite a developed system around those kind of professional roles. I don't know if that's maybe why we have a more distinct middle class, but um, some of it is perhaps also about divisions across parts of the country, which we could also talk about. There's probably more of an association with the north of England, with the working class, and the south of England with the middle class. Um, and the south of England has often been wealthier, and maybe that's part of what makes that different. Those would be some of my thoughts. Why do you think the UK has a class system? You said you had ideas. Yeah, I, I think that partly this comes from like Britain's history. When you think about the past, say, 250 years, the fact that Britain was one of the first countries to industrialize at the end of the 1700s, and Britain really was you know, the most industrialized country by the early 1800s, um, which meant you know, lots of factories, lots of um, manual labor, people working with their hands, people doing jobs that didn't need um, uh, sort of a degree to be able to do them. Often they were put into these jobs at a young age, sometimes even as children, and would learn these trades and then you know grow up doing that same job all their lives. You know, I, I think that that is, is sort of where this idea of working class comes from to some extent. And that's when people started using the word class in that way to say that there are different classes. This is still an idea that's really important in Britain, that there are certain people who work in factories. And then there are certain people who are lawyers and judges and doctors and factory managers. So, you know, from that period, we started to divide people and say, well, you're one or the other, and you need a degree to, to do this job, and you need to have gone to this school. But if you want to work in this factory, it's fine if you don't have any training and you start at the age of 12. So we started, you know, quite, quite a long time ago to divide people. And I think broadly, through the 1800s and in early 1900s, society was still kind of grouped around those two different ways of working, you know, that we'd started to call working class and, and middle class. And in some ways, even if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, I think people's identities were really linked to their class and what they did, what they spent their free time doing, how they self-identified. And somehow, like what we've seen since the 1970s and 80s is these identities really getting quite mixed up and getting a lot more fluid so that you could say that you had come from a certain class, but you might also be very wealthy. You might be, you might say you're working class, but actually be very wealthy. And the link between like how much you earn and what you 
do culturally is a link that doesn't exist in the same way. So I would say when we talk about class today, I always feel a bit like we're having some discussion that doesn't really mean a lot for our generation. I think that these are terms from like an, from another generation we're still trying to apply, but the world has changed quite a lot since then. I think that's right. I think do think stuff has changed quite a lot. I think they're partly the sort of jobs that you describe as being traditionally working class. Obviously, a, a major change in the UK has been that we do not have the manufacturing that we used to have and the sorts of roles uh, which are very labour intensive, where you need to employ lots of people, not paying them as much money. Um, and you'd have hundreds, thousands of people working in factories. They're much more rare in the country. And I think that probably has made, yeah, the the working class, there's less opportunity in some sense for those roles. And in other ways, people who would have been working class have taken new opportunities. And there's been a big drive towards increasing the number of places in universities and making universities accessible to people. Um, and other ways that you know people might have opportunity to develop wealth and like you say move into roles that were not normally kind of of their class i would say it normally feels quite um one directional so it isn't that lots of people who have a working class culture are now taking on these new roles and lots of people who are middle class are now taking on the, the jobs that working class people were before so in some senses you could see some positives about that that there is new opportunity i think that change that I just described of the of the sorts of jobs that we no longer have does then leave a large number of people who might have been called working class previously in a position where it's very hard to find work at all. And obviously in the UK as in other countries, we have a very developed uh, benefit system and government support system. And I think there's a big challenge uh, in the UK now that um, people who might have done some of those manufacturing jobs don't have, there isn't kind of sufficient employment and opportunities for them to um, get make a living for themselves and they get kind of they're on government benefits but there isn't much opportunity to get off those benefits into a significant enough uh, job to pay for kind of food and, and rent so some people in the working class have, have moved out of uh, kind of traditional working class roles and are, are much wealthier than they would have been before but other people are in some ways more stuck than they would have been they don't have the opportunity to say start in the lowest job in a factory and work up because there aren't any factories at all. That's not quite true, but <laughs> there are certainly a lot less than there were. But one, one more thing I, I just wanted to say on that was, I think it's very interesting as you talk about people who um, might acquire wealth or take on roles. Um, let's say someone from a working class background takes on a middle class job and, and has uh, some more money, but retains their working class culture. I think that is true. I think what's very interesting is, and maybe where it's different for our generation, is once that person then has children of their own, I think it becomes much harder to identify those children as being working class. There might be certain things they would still identify, the stories they hear from their parents, from their grandparents, and, and some culture might still apply. But if you're growing up in a family where your parents are in professional jobs and you have significant income, I think it becomes harder to see a real connection to the community of saying, oh, no, but I'm working class. Often maybe your family will have moved out of the geographical community they lived in to buy a nicer house or to enable you to go to a nicer school. And so actually it becomes harder to see a connection back to this cultural class that your parent has. And I think these can be quite interesting families where the children 
uh, of almost a different class to the parents. And maybe often the parents are very happy about this. This was part of their aspiration for their children. You know, I was I was thinking about something I said in the podcast, this fact that between 1964 and 1997, all of British prime ministers, every single one of them, was state educated. And before that, they were all privately educated. They all went to private schools, fee-paying schools. And then since 1997, we've had a kind of mix um, in terms of our prime ministers, more leaning towards private schools um, than state, but it's still been a mix. Um, And, you know, I I felt like I should really explain why that might be. Um, You know, was it really just that we we decided to elect people who came from a different background. Definitely that was true. I mean, in the early 1960s, we had a prime minister who was sitting in the House of Lords, right? So that, you know, hasn't, hasn't really happened. That hasn't happened since. And it's pretty hard to imagine that happening. So definitely we, we look towards political leaders who came from uh, a different background and had different accents and so on but also it's because of the grammar schools and that's not something that I talked about a lot in that episode I don't think I talked about them at all which is these were schools which were free Um, they do exist now still but only in a few different places in the country they were schools that were free and you had to sit an exam at the age of 10 or 11 and if you passed that exam you could go to a grammar school but they were really hard to get into and the result is that a lot of people who couldn't afford to go to private schools which back then you know were the were far better than the state schools they went to these grammar schools and had a really top class education where they could then go on to you know, top universities, and basically live a sort of middle-class existence in some ways. There was a real link between these grammar schools and class. And sometimes you would have a family where one child got into a grammar school and the others didn't, and that child would then have very different opportunities in life from the others. And in some ways, you know, I'm not saying that this system just produced positives. I think there were lots of issues with it and it's very controversial but this system did mean that there were lots of political leaders and people running companies and so on especially from the 1960s onwards who had gone to these grammar schools Um, and and I reckon that that probably plays a part in this story of class in Britain that you could have um, you could have people come from a working class background and nevertheless sort of live a middle-class existence and be the first in their family to go to university, something that people in Britain often say, that they are the first in their family to go to university. That's a big marker of class, isn't it? Yes, that is. That It's often a question that an employer um, might survey amongst their staff, not to um, say whether or not they get, would give you a job, but as a way of understanding are they being an equal opportunities employer? Are they employing some people from different backgrounds? Maybe we should just talk about equal opportunities and what that is, because I think that is something that's really peculiarly British, isn't it? So 
it's quite a broad topic because some of the way you talk about equal opportunities is around uh, certain protected characteristics. So to say that you should, um, if someone applies for a job and they are uh, of, well, that their gender or their ethnicity shouldn't be what defines whether they get that job or not. And therefore a employer should make certain particular efforts to um, ensure that they're not being biased towards certain people or biased against certain people. That might include things like um, sometimes they will assess your application without seeing your name um, or they will ask you to write your application in a way that doesn't reveal your gender so that they can make a judgment purely on the skills and experience that you have and not uh, based on these different characteristics. And there's several more um, around, so as well as around your sexuality um, and your race and your gender and your religion. I try to think there are at least that many. There may be and disability as well. So the idea is that employers are not biased. In other words, they don't, they can't be prejudiced against their employees. They can't give a job to someone because they're also white or because they're also male. The it's a way of making applying for jobs, you know, what we call blind, so that you can't necessarily see the person, but you can just see their experience and you can give them a job more fairly. And that's the idea. And I think um, there's a, a big drive in the UK and many companies to do that. And indeed, they're bound by the law that they have to do that. Um, what's interesting when you talk about class is there isn't a similar thing for class to say you must employ working class or middle class or upper class people, partly because, as we've been saying, it's not always very obvious what class someone is in. And it isn't based on a, a, um, a definable characteristic in many ways. But it's still something which employers will feel pressure to try and balance out. So part of this is to do with with an agenda that's that's called positive discrimination. And because discrimination is a really negative thing. Discrimination is saying, I don't want to give you this job because... Um, because you, you're not like me and making, you know, drawing differences between people. Positive discrimination means saying, you know what, we haven't got a lot of people from this background in our company. We haven't got a lot of people from an Asian background or we haven't got a lot of women in our company. So we should um, prioritise giving jobs to them. And that's something that is, is more common in Britain now. So I think that's something worth bearing in mind that applies to class as well. And to, to, you know, when we get to it, <laughs> to poshness, which is that there is also positive discrimination. And I was just wondering whether you think it's easier or harder to, to get a job now, you know, a, a, a high paying job um, in something like a bank, uh, for example, if you are posh or if you're not. Mm, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I think overall, I would still say it's very much easier if you are posh, and we can talk again about what that means and, and all these different um, things, that factors that go into being posh um, to get a job in those places. I still think it's easier. I think maybe there is right at the top of those organisations, it may be a little bit more complex. So if you are 
running, say, a bank or a political party, and you've never had ever in your history a woman or someone who isn't white um, or even someone who is working class or has gone to a state school, if you've never had someone like that in charge of your organisation or at least on the top team, then I think there probably would at this moment in time be a big pressure to put someone on who is from a more diverse background. So there might be some people who, let's say, are white men who've been to private school and been to these top universities and are now very high, you know, in the middle or near the top of these places who feel that their opportunities are cut off. But if I'm honest, they're not the people I'm, I'm most worried about having their opportunities cut off. They're probably people already doing very well and are just seeing perhaps their last or, or next to last promotion delayed. And um, I think personally, that's probably a price worth paying uh, for all the other opportunities that come with this. Sure. I think I agree with you about that. And the fact that, you know, if you come from a background with a lot of money, you just have a lot of flexibility about how you deal with problems in your life. If you lose your job, you have quite a lot of options and you have time to reflect and think about what you do next. If you don't come from a background with lots of money, um, then that becomes a lot harder. So, you know, the reality is if you are barred from a job, you're not able to get a job because they've, and you're a rich white man, and say it's a director of a company job, and the previous six directors of the company were rich white men, then you probably will, you know, be able to go and find an appropriate job somewhere else, or you will, you'll have a lot more possibility to do that, you'll find it easier to at least put the food on the table in the evening than if you come from a background where you don't have a lot of money. So I guess one thing that I want to ask you about is, um, is it fair to, to say that upper class and posh mean the same thing? Hmm. I think that's a, a very interesting question. Um, I think my personal reflection would be that uh, posh is broader than upper class. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about posh, and I thought as I listened to your podcast again, is how it's often used in quite a comparative way. So lots of people would say, ah, you know, um, for example, some people who are working class might consider everybody who's middle class to be posh or everyone who speaks with um, a kind of Southern English accent to be posh or to own your own house or all these things. Or for example, you might say that everyone in that 6% of people who get educated at private schools, they must all be posh. But it, within each of those layers, I think most people, even most people who, for example, go to a private school might say, no, 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 I'm not, I, they might say I'm not posh. And most of them would say that they're not upper class. And I think only a very, very small number of people would ever describe themselves as upper class, even if a slightly larger group might accept that they are posh. Normally, when you talk about the upper class in the UK, you would think, as you said in your podcast, of those smaller numbers of private schools that are kind of very old schools, boarding schools. And you would also think particularly of people who owned a lot of land. And historically, that was one of the main things defining the upper class was landowners who had very large um, rural estates, large houses, 
um, would may have a connection more to the House of Lords, so would have some kind of title maybe in their family or be related to someone who does. And probably a less, yeah, much less associated with the sort of middle class professions that we just described and more associated with people who just have a lot of money and own companies and run things. And those, that very small number of people you might think of as being upper class. Yeah, I think that's my perception of it as well. The upper class comes from this idea of the nobility. And so to find people now who call themselves upper class is really rare. I mean, even like CEOs of companies, people who direct companies and might be earning millions every year, they probably still wouldn't call themselves upper class, which shows you kind of how removed it is from how much money you're earning now. Whereas you might find people who would call themselves upper class who are very poor nobility, who struggle to keep their, you know, castle um, lit up and heated in the winter, you know, they might call themselves upper class. So it's kind of lost its link with with money in some ways, isn't it? I think that's really quite true. And in your podcast, you talked about how the idea of posh is quite um, English and you contrasted it to the French idea of the elite. And I wonder if now in the UK, you might be seeing both of those things at the same time. So you might see elite people, like you say, who are CEOs running companies, very wealthy, who are not posh and then people who are posh or you might say are upper class actually they have they might still have a, a large amount of family wealth but lots of that money is about owning a large property and often many of those families have sold lots of the property they used to own and are holding on to what they've got left and have a sense of they don't want to sell this very expensive property because it's their family home and has been for maybe hundreds of years but they don't have a great source of income to go along with it. Now, again, these aren't people I necessarily feel particularly sorry for. You know, we're not talking about people when we say they have maybe not so much income. They're still likely living a relatively wealthy lifestyle. But it's interesting in terms of if you think of, as you said, a kind of French elite, a kind of Parisian, wealthy, very stylish, perhaps living in a very modern house. Um, and you think you do get the same in the UK and in London and in other major cities. But actually, when you talk about posh, often you're talking about things that are quite rural. That's where posh people may have a home in the city. A very you know, a, An upper class person would likely have a country estate and then a house in London. But um, it's really the country estate that defines their, their kind of class and their poshness. And actually, that might look quite ragged. It probably doesn't look modern and um, well done and, and, and kind of freshly painted. It probably looks quite untidy and messy and a bit damaged. And actually, if you talked about posh clothing, for example, you, you don't necessarily think of a very smart suit. You might think of a kind of a 20 year old expensive rain jacket as a kind of posh thing that you might wear as you walk around your country estate. And actually, posh people often have quite a lot of connections with rural locations. And that's a, a, quite a big link, I think. You said that poshness is... Um, people who come from a, a very small set of boarding schools or might be associated with land ownership and so on. Have have you ever been called posh? Yeah, so I'm not, if I've ever been called posh, yes, I have. And I think um, often to do with maybe the way that I would speak. So the sort of accent that I have is um, lots of people might say it was a posh accent. I don't think that I speak posh. But lots of people would. And I think I could identify other people 
who I think is being posh in a way that I'm not. I'd say, no, 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 I'm not posh. Listen to this person. And you hear someone else with another voice. Now oh, that's what posh is. Um, so it's definitely true that you always, many people think of it that it's the next person uh, kind of in who is posh. If you think of society as maybe a set of circles towards the very middle, the very top kind of people in the middle, you always think it's the next circle in who are the posh people, not you. You're not like them. And it goes with some of the things you talked about in the first podcast about how posh is associated with being entitled or being showing snobbery. So kind of looking down on people who aren't as posh as you are. Um, and I wonder if, yeah, the way we use posh is often quite absolute and maybe it should be more comparative. The truth is I am more posh than many people and less posh than some other people. And then it's quite hard to say, are you posh or not? Well, yes and and no. I think one of the things that I would say, we've talked a, a bit about those boarding schools and I think they're part of the picture. Um, I think there are other institutions as well that go along with them that kind of fit together into this idea of poshness and of class. And I think some people historically, it, historically, uh, let me put it like this, historically those once you couldn't really get into those so the only way to get into those posh institutions was to start at the beginning let me go through so you'd start by going to boarding school you go to boarding school very young people might go to boarding school at the age of seven so you'd go to boarding school you'd be away from your family from the age of seven in this institution where you would live and be told what was important in life what mattered you'd hang out with these often just for boys so you'd be hanging out with boys of your own age from your own background you would then go from boarding school to university. And when you say university, you would only go to a small number of universities, very old universities, prestigious universities. So Cambridge and Oxford being the most famous and the eldest, but there's some others along with those as kind of very old universities, institutions. And from there, you would go into these sorts of jobs we've described, perhaps in financial services in an old bank, um, or you would become a lawyer. And then you might go to um, become a judge later in your career and you could see how all of these institutions kind of fit together and once you were on that uh, escalator you move up institutions as you got older and that's how it worked and historically it was also tied to things like the Church of England so some of those opportunities would only be open to you if you were an Anglican if you were a part of the Church of England so if you were Catholic or if you were an atheist or if you were Jewish you'd find it much harder I think some of what we've been talking about is how there are, there are newer ways more recently in the UK to jump onto that escalator later in life and get into one of those institutions without going into the one before. So now you could get into those universities without having been to those boarding schools, or you could get into being a lawyer or into a, a kind of bank without having been to those top universities. And so people can kind of jump into this little escalator of poshness at a later point. And part of the reason I'm telling this story is I think that's partly true of me. So I don't think I wouldn't in some ways identify myself as being posh. I didn't go to one of these top boarding schools that we've described. But I did go to one of those universities. And having done that, I think it's quite hard for me to then say that I'm I'm not posh. I think having had that advantage of being in that position and then being able to go on from that position to the job that I'm doing now, I could say, no, I could see why I seem to be posh because I've, I've, I've got onto that kind of escalator of institutions that all fit together. Um, and so someone from lots of different backgrounds or lots of different wealth, there are now some opportunities to do that. And I think probably 
you have to admit to being posh once you've managed to get into those institutions. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, some of that applies to me as well. And in the same way as it applies to you. And so um, I always feel a bit like I'm sort of half in that world. And um, I think that when, you know, when we were at university as well, because we were at university together, um, you know, I don't know whether you feel the same, but I was really conscious of the fact that um, that there was a very big spectrum of kind of class backgrounds um, and, uh, and and so on, and uh, and that actually it did go from sort of working class up to upper class. Um, and although that didn't mean that you couldn't make friends with people um, and study with people um, from different backgrounds still um there was a consciousness of who was in which group and there were certain markers of class identity as well in the sense that there are there were drinking societies um a little bit like the Bullingdon club uh, which still exists in Oxford and the riot club which is the fictionalized version that i talked about in in the posh podcast those things definitely do exist um, so if someone were to say to me, uh, well, you went to a posh university, um, you know, I, in a sense, you have to accept that and you have to say, well, yes, that is part of the the journey from um, along that, that road that you've talked about. But equally, if I had time, I would probably say to them, it's a little bit more complex than that. And actually, these institutions, um, you know, from university and upwards see it as part of their job to try to take a more diverse group of people. And like you say, there are more ways into these jobs than there were, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so it's become more complex. Um, and yet poshness is something that that is really at the centre of our society. And it's something we talk about a lot. It's something we use to distance other people from us quite a lot, I think. And, you know, I, I was thinking... Um, over the last 30 or 40 years, inequality in in Britain, the distance between the poor and the rich has actually increased, right? We're, we're living in a more unequal society than we were 40 years ago. And, you know, that is a separate question. It's got a link to poshness. But like we said, your wealth isn't the same thing as whether you're posh. So are we kind of, when we talk about poshness and we criticize people for being posh are we barking up the wrong tree as we say are we are we really um attacking something that we shouldn't be attacking what's your perspective on that i think that's interesting i think you're right that it's possible to be too distracted by the idea of poshness and i think um particularly as we've talked about how it's often very relative so we might say as you said that um not all of the prime ministers that we've had since 1997 are posh. Or we might say, they should, between the 1997 and the 60s, they weren't posh because they didn't go to these certain schools. That's not really the whole picture if you looked at their lives. And like you say, as you've talked about your own experience of maybe being posh-ish or having bits of posh as kind of part of your story um, and mine as well. Uh, so I think it is possible to be distracted by it. I think it's helpful to understand how we've got to where we are but I agree, it's probably not the way that you're going to fix things. So having, for example, a prime minister or 
uh, people who are judges or bankers or doctors or whoever they, you know, whatever professions we're talking about, who are not posh, isn't going to somehow fix that inequality that we're talking about. Um, and the opportunities that some people have who come from poorer backgrounds um, or from working class backgrounds or whose parents didn't go to the university, for example, the opportunities that those people have are great, fantastic. But that isn't actually the answer to then lots of other people still experiencing, like say, increasing wealth inequality and um, links back to some of what we've talked about already in terms of the job opportunities that simply aren't really there for quite a lot of people. So the fact that, let's say, one in 10 people from um, a, we might say a lower socioeconomic background um, is you know, a phrase that you might use to so someone who doesn't have as much money and culturally is from a more kind of working class background. It's, it's a way of describing that. If one in 10 of those people can now become a millionaire, fantastic for them, but that doesn't actually help the other nine people necessarily. Um, and I think part of what we talked about already in terms of um, the way that person may then go on to assimilate, to become part of the middle class or part of posh society by the sorts of things they choose to spend their money on, the schools they send their children to, and actually their aspiration may be to send their children to one of these posh institutions so that their children can then on acquire poshness. And actually this connection to the original other nine people has gone completely. You might elect that person and say, oh, they're, they're not posh. But actually, as you said, that hasn't really done something for those other people in, in a different situation. Hmm. I suppose there's been a trend over the last kind of maybe as small as kind of five years or so where you see a number of politicians and leaders and so on get to their position um, through populism, through you know appealing to actually quite a broad range of society across different classes, despite coming from a, a, a sort of very elite background. And that's the same in uh, in France, where you know Macron is perceived by a lot of people as being out of touch and as being, uh, if they could use, if they, if they know the word posh, then they, they would use that word, um, certainly as being elite, um, arrogant, and from a different class, he, you know, uh, went to, um, went to the, the top universities um, and so on. Um, he, he worked in finance. So there's the, he, he was able to build a populist movement despite that. And the same thing in America as well. You know, part of the English-speaking world that I don't talk about enough in this podcast. And there, Donald Trump, again, the outgoing president, he was able to build a really large populist base in America, despite actually coming from a very elite background and coming from a very wealthy family, having been a, a very high-profile businessman in New York. So do you think that we, sh we could expect more of that in the future? Or, or do you think that, that, this is, that these are all one-offs, exceptions, and, we're, and do you think we're living in more of a sort of equal society in terms of what can be achieved? Hmm, that's an interesting question. 
when people are able to communicate to pe to the public about a particular cultural message that even though they come from a very different background of education or of wealth they agree on a particular aspect of values or of things that are particularly important to national identity so you talked about america what does it mean to be american and there was a way in which donald trump could communicate to you know almost half of america it seems in a way that they really responded to and said yes when he describes what it means to be american i feel a, a link to that and i i agree with him about um, the way that other people have disrespected me or America or Americanness. Um, I'm less sure how that, you know, the French political system is maybe more complicated and different, but there's still something in, in the way that Macron is describing a kind of a new leap forward for France and a new kind of emphasis on um, a kind of, I guess, a, a, a nation that people can be proud of. And you can see in, as he kind of... Um, well, you know, this is perhaps a, a more political or personal reflection. The Macron of the last maybe year and a half is maybe not as distinct from Donald Trump as Macron might have originally made himself out to be. And, you know, maybe you can see these things starting to come together. I think personally that we will see more of leaders of that kind, um, people who are trying to particularly tap into a sense of national identity. I think that will become more important in lots of countries um, because I think there are quite a lot of countries who have had, um, particularly if you're talking about the Western world, so about Europe and about America, countries who have had huge uh, success over the last century or couple of centuries, who are now more challenged and unsure of their place in the world. People will want to know again, what does it mean to be French? Or what does it mean to be American? What can we hold on to and be proud of and define ourselves as the rest of the world changes very quickly? And how, what, what might that mean? So I think that will keep happening. And I think that it does lean itself towards um, individual leaders who have a lot of money and have a lot of opportunity. Um, but then it's how do those people connect with the public who don't have that same opportunity and money? And like you say, in many ways, they've been remarkably successful at making people forget that there's that kind of gap. Maybe the last thing I'd say on it, I think this applies less in the UK but much more in America is the way that someone being wealthy or from being having from a kind of higher class in some sense can often be seen as a positive. Whereas I think perhaps in the UK and some other countries, it can be sometimes seen as more of a, if not a negative, then at least something that people aren't sure about. So I think if the leader of the UK was as wealthy as Donald Trump is, people would be quite uncomfortable with that. Or they might still vote for them, but they'd be uncomfortable. Whereas I think in America, it's seen as a mark of success to say, well, look, a wealthy person must be someone who could lead our country to become very wealthy. Um, whereas I think in the UK and, and maybe more in Europe, people might be more suspicious of saying, oh, who, whose interests are you looking out for? So that's an interesting cultural difference, I think. I think you put your finger on it. I absolutely agree with that. The last thing I wanted to, um, or one thing I wanted to say that we haven't said, which I think is very interesting um, in terms of those institutions that we talked about, those kind of posh places, posh schools and uh, posh universities and um, uh, the legal profession and the buildings in the city. 
I guess maybe just some something that listens to the podcast might want to look up or think about is the way that the buildings in all of those places are really quite similar. And I think that's something if you ever visit the UK or if you look at pictures of the UK, it's, it's worth having a having a look and having a think. So if I showed you a picture from some of those very posh boarding schools from Eton or, or Harrow or Westminster, and then I showed you a picture of the Houses of Parliament, the Palace of Westminster, where the UK government is based, and then I showed you a picture of the courts and uh, the, what they call the inn of inns of court, which is where people are barristers and they have their chambers and, and lawyers are based. Um, and I can think of some other institutions as well. But if I showed you pictures from each of those, you'd find it very hard to tell which was from which. And I think that's just an extra interesting aspect of this, that you can actually see it in the architecture, the way that these there was this link between these places and you would go from one to the other and feel, well, if you went to boarding school when you were seven, you'd be going to say to a, a university at Oxford and Cambridge and then into say politics or into the law. And even the very environment around you would feel like home because it's this kind of environment you've grown up in since you were a very young boy. And so lots of these men would feel very comfortable spending time with the same people they've always spent time with in the same buildings they've always spent time in. So I think that might just be an interesting thing for listeners if they wanted to see poshness in kind of bricks and mortar in real life then looking at pictures of some of those institutions might help. I'll put some links in the um, episode description. Um, it's interesting what you say about that. Um, and also these buildings have a kind of resonance outside of Britain too. For example, in a lot of the elite universities, the top universities in America, they have sort of replica buildings of from um, Oxford and Cambridge or from, you know, uh, very significant buildings in London or in some of these private schools, you'll find buildings that are pretty much exactly the same, maybe slightly smaller or bigger um, in, in in America. So there is definitely something to that, that, that you can go from, from the age of four until you retire, basically living and working in places that look exactly the same. And I don't think that's really true everywhere around the world. I think that's something that's that's really British that you can even if you, you can go around the world through through, you know, elite institutions and those exist in every country, I'm sure. But you they don't all look the same. And in, in Britain they don't all look the same, but um there is definitely um a style and there's a pattern which is really interesting. And I know that's something that you're really interested in so thank you for that observation because I, I hadn't really thought about that but it's definitely true so I'll I'll put some links to some pictures in the episode description thank you so much for doing this Alex and we've, we've taken up quite a lot of your time today so um it's really great to chat to you again about that and we'll we'll um we'll try and find another time to do this in uh, sometime in 20, later in 2021 if you're up for it yeah definitely thanks for having me back on hope you enjoyed the interview with Alex it was a real pleasure to talk to him again and to put this episode together remember if you want to get in touch you can do that on Twitter or Instagram Intermediate English Podcast you can also send me a message on either of those that's all for this week so have a great week and see you next time